from KPMG, this is Global Perspectives with Jillian Tech. Hello and welcome to Global Perspectives, the podcast series from KPMG that's focused on the big international issues and inspiring leaders hoping to shape a more sustainable world where CEOs and their companies can flourish. On this month's episode, we're going to be asking about how much social relations and technology can really shape the financial value of an organization and how employees work. We'll be looking at what companies and regulators can do to avoid crazy behavior in banks and other financial services companies. And we'll hear from a man who's been looking at that from the perspective of an anthropologist. That is Daniel Bayunza. He's an anthropologist who first started observing bankers in their natural habitat on trading floors back at the turn of the century on Wall Street. He was at the London School of Economics and then worked at Columbia Business School. And for many years, he's been inside big financial firms on their trading floors, watching how the different finances actually operate and what they do or more importantly, what they don't do. He looked particularly at questions of derivatives trading and how it's changed by technology. So what can CEOs in finance and other business fields learn from this, particularly at a time when we've all been forced to embrace digitization, whether we like it or not, in the era of the COVID-19 lockdowns? So Daniel, thanks for coming along and joining me. The idea of digitization and financial technology changing finance isn't something that just happened during the COVID-19 pandemic. It's actually been changing finance really since the 1990s, where essentially as early as the 1990s, the banks could have put all of their operations on digital platforms if they wanted. I mean, that's what you saw, isn't it? That's right. And uh, Bloomberg, for instance, had all the functionality to have a terminal in your home. So you could have access to all the information that you wanted right from your home. So bankers could have been all working from home, WFH as we now call it, um, 20 years before the pandemic, couldn't they? Absolutely. And then to my surprise, I found out that they chose not to. So why didn't they? Because one of the things you noticed was that when you went into these trading floors and in spite of the fact that bankers all had the ability to do work from home 20 years ago, um, banks were actually building bigger and bigger physical trading floors, really starting from the turn of the century. Why? So the answer that I got from the manager of the trading floor is that as uh, information became available to everyone on an equal basis, um, advantage was shifting more and more to an ability to better understand the deals that were particularly complex and uncertain. And in order to do that, it helped to be able to have quick conversations, to be attuned to the social cues, and to foster interaction across the various desks, and not just within a single desk. And um, the feeling was very much that this was all facilitated by working from the same space. So even though the bankers started having, at the turn of the century, the ability to do everything they wanted to, in theory, in cyberspace, they actually began to realize it really mattered having people together in the same room to get a competitive advantage over each other. 
why did you think that was? I mean, what actually is the benefit of humans working in the same physical space rather than just being all working from home in a field like banking? Yeah, so most likely this differs from industry to industry, but specifically um, in the space of derivatives trading. What I found out is that um, the traders were participating in the market by using complex mathematical models. Now, we all know that those economic models rely on certain assumptions uh, for them to work, but it's difficult in real time to ascertain whether those assumptions hold or not. So what the traders found is that by pulling various desks specialized in different models in the same space, they were able to monitor from other desks whether uh, the assumptions behind the models that a given trader was trying to use actually were holding or not. So you actually use a word to describe this, what was going on in terms of how the information flows were going around the banks, which is called sense-making, isn't it? Um, which I love this concept right. because sense-making is something that originally came from a study of Polynesian or Melanesian sailors, isn't it? Tell us briefly what sense-making is and why it matters so much to anybody working in a knowledge-based business. So uh, sense-making, um, of course, it has an important uh, intellectual origins going all the way back to anthropology. The way in which I personally think about sense-making is that it relates to the ability to make sense, to uh, figure out extremely complex situations. And so when we see failures of technology, um, whether it is the blow up of a space shuttle or an accident in a petrochemical plant, it often is because of failures of sense-making, in inability to make sense of what is taking place. Right. And one of the ideas in sense-making is that, you know, there are two ways of navigating the world, you know, if you are a sailor. You can either use GPS, where you basically plot in your coordinates and it tells you in a straight line where to go, and the machine's telling you, the humans, what to do. Or you can do what traditional sailors in Polynesia did, which was to basically come together as a group and read the wind, the waves, the stars, the sea, and sense what's around them and react to it and navigate in response to the world rather than sort of imposing a GPS on it. How does that apply to a kind of office situation and say bankers with their financial models? Yeah, so the parallel actually works pretty well. Bankers need to read the market. And as the saying goes, you may be right about a certain trade, but if the market goes against you, it'll be very difficult for you to stay liquid for long enough uh, to, to survive a bet against the market. So it's a very complicated ability to simultaneously develop your own opinion about a trade, and while at the same time understanding and reading where is the market going. And it's this ability to put the two together uh, that trading floors allow. So again, one of the things you were doing as an anthropologist and sitting and observing the bankers and the traders in their natural habitat, if you like, how they all interacted on the trading desks with their daily rituals and social networks, was to basically see how where they sat and who they bumped into basically created these kind of information flows that let them sense make and read, not so much read the room, but read the markets. That's right. And so sometimes it could be that, say for instance, they are making bets about the statistical properties of a stock 
But then uh, if a given stock, the company behind it, starts to undergo merger conversations, then those statistical properties will change. So for a statistical arbitrageur to bump into a merger arbitrageur while going to get some coffee and have a quick chat can be enormously helpful. Right, so it's about basically gathering, picking up nuggets of information, smelling the atmosphere, and in many ways, bumping into different colleagues from the ones you actually work, in, work with, isn't it? That's right. And, and, and what's really interesting about this is that this is not to deny the, the possibilities of technology. This is the opposite. This is to acknowledge the possibilities of technology, but to also understand that you basically need to have an advantage over the other traders in other trading floors who also have the technology. And so the way of doing that is to understand what are the limits of technology and then address those through social relations. I'm Hala Mahiadeen. In a moment, we'll return to the second part of Gillian Tett's interview with Daniel Beunza. But first, I'm joined by KPMG's Global Head of Corporate Affairs, Jane Laurie. Jane, we've been hearing in this episode how the banking industry has adapted to the new norm with hybrid working and working from home. How did KPMG embrace the new ways of working over the last couple of years? Well, I think to start, Hannah, I was just, I was really fascinated in the conversation with Daniel, just how important it is to really understand the relationship between technology and people. And I I guess most businesses today are are catapulting towards digital transformation. And that would definitely speed it up during COVID. Um, So I think KPMG moved globally over to Teams in a matter of weeks where normally it would have taken, I guess, months. And the digital platforms do open up huge opportunities. But I think what businesses like KPMG are wrestling with is just getting that right blend. So there's no doubt that human interaction is important, but I don't think people are also racing back to offices. And given KPMG is a global organisation, so you know, 140 countries, and I think what you see is very different things in different places. So I was down in, in one of the offices uh, last week where it was really buzzing. People had definitely embraced coming back to the office. Equally, go to other offices and, and they're very, very quiet, apart from when there are planned events. And for me, I think that's the trick. How do you provide enough incentive for people to go back to the office when there's something that they can do there that they can't do from home? But also to respect the fact that I think people are smart enough to know when it makes more sense to stay at home. So therefore, I think it's about that culture. How do you sort of breed that trust and collaboration and keep keep days, what I would call Teams or Zoom light? I wrote a sort of lighthearted blog after my very first day in the office after COVID. And I said I was going to set an in the office outlook message. So instead of out of the office, set an in the office outlook message, because really, when you go into the office, it's a very different experience these days. So getting that balance and and really sort of building that culture. It's interesting that you touched there on culture and purpose. How important are those elements to a business like KPMG when it's making quite operational decisions like working patterns? So again, I I was really struck um, by Daniel's use of the anthropological term sense-making, so making sense of the complex. And I would say that over the last few years, we've moved from what we used to call the the VUCA world, so that volatility, uncertainty, complexity and ambiguity. And I think we've moved into what people now call permacrisis. 
And so given we're in this sort of perma crisis world, I do think that purpose helps us make sense of what's going on and therefore to take the right decisions. So whether that was sort of taking those operational decisions through COVID um, or even slightly more sensitive decisions that businesses had to take through things like Black Lives Matter or more recently, um, the terrible war in Ukraine. So I think it's our purpose, given it's what we do, why we do it, along with our values, can really guide some operational decisions. A second reason why I think purpose has become even more important through this perma-crisis world. And I think that's because it differentiates an organisation. It actually, you know, maybe starting with your people, it gives you something which defines you. What advice do you have for CEOs and other leaders who are ready to jump in but might feel slightly overwhelmed? Well, when we're thinking about this sort of ESG journey, I guess most people listening to this um, podcast will be at different parts of that journey. So either we'll be fully sort of embraced, uh, have embraced the ESG journey and be thinking about how they're going to address climate change, what they're doing in diversity and inclusion, and how they're sort of governing their organisation. But for those who are maybe sort of approaching it for the first time, actually, I think it's just stepping back and going back to that that notion of purpose. Why does your business exist? What does it do? And what are the things that are most material to your organisation? So I think if you can be in a position where you're using ESG to guide the decisions you make, then that's actually a pretty good place to start. Jane, thanks for joining us on Global Perspectives. Now back to the second part of Gillian Tett's interview with Daniel Beyunza. So if all the banks are kind of engaged in arms races with each other about who can be the savviest trading floor, the trading team using technology, it's actually the ones who know how to use the human capacity that can actually give them the edge. Is that what you're saying? That's absolutely right. It's about combining both. This is not about being Luddites and denying the benefits of technology, nor is it about exclusively orienting oneself towards technology. It's about figuring out how to combine the two. Right. Well, I'll come on later on about what that means for companies which are not engaged in finance. But before I do, I have to ask the obvious question. You went to this Wall Street firm in 2000 or end of 1990s and were sort of baffled as to why when they had the technology to work from home, they actually kept building bigger and bigger trading floors. And then you realize it's because they needed the human dynamics to basically take advantage of the technologies. And then suddenly in 2020, we actually had a situation where they were forced to work from home or to do exactly what they didn't want to do back in 2000 when they were building bigger trading floors. So what did you see happen to the banks and their trading floors and derivatives traders then when they were suddenly forced to go home in a hurry? Yeah, what I found was something that actually confirmed my hunch. Um, Some banks were working from home. Some banks, however, had insisted on keeping their traders in the trading floor. So the banks would report that only 5% of the bank was still working on their headquarters but that 5% included all the traders. And so what I found is that the banks that actually insisted on keeping the traders on the trading floor did phenomenally well in the first days and weeks of the pandemic. Um, Some of them made such profits uh, from trading that they more than made up 
for all the lost income in investment banking. So when you had a natural test of whether having those social dynamics actually was important or not, um, out of the blue, the test arrived and it showed that they were more productive when they were still interacting with each other in a physical sense and sense making um, for what the room was doing. Absolutely. And I don't, you know, I didn't just rely on the accounting figures. I actually went out and called them on the phone and um, they were very happy to share with me, of course, on an anonymous, on an anonymous basis. And that's exactly what I found out. There was a very clear divide. There were banks that gave freedom to the traders and there were banks that insisted on keeping them on the trading floor. And the latter made phenomenal profits. So what do you think that means for going forward in terms of finance? I mean, do you think it means that no matter how many people would actually like to go and do their job from Tuscany or from Aspen or from the beach at somewhere nice, in fact, in the future, financial companies are going to have to force everyone to come back to the office and keep interacting with each other and bumping into each other? Well, I think that, um, to me, my takeaway, rather than a hard and fast prediction, as, as, as in they will all come back to the office. Uh, by the way, many already are back in the office, specifically when it comes to sales and trading. But rather than a hard and fast prediction, I think that what the banks will have to do is grapple with the fact that you need both technology and social relations. And, you know, sometimes it may be that the banks develop smart and innovative ways to achieve that combination. One of the leading banks that I spoke to, they had developed a way of managing to combine both. Uh, what they did is they were, they kept some people at home and some people in the trading floor. But what's interesting is th they were strategic about whom they kept on the trading floor. What they did is they made sure that they had representatives of every desk on the floor because they understood that the teams within the desks, social interaction is going to take place anyways. These are people who are talking all the time to each other. It's the across desks uh, communication that proves challenging. And so what they did is they kept an element of each, each desk in order to ensure those communications while giving freedom to others to work from home. Now, these days, you are a um, professor at City of London Business School. So you're talking to a whole range of wannabe business students, not just financiers and bankers. So I'm curious, when you look at your experience, you've seen all the contradictory ways that bank trading floors, derivatives teams, do and don't use technology. What do you think the message is for wider companies in terms of how they integrate technology into their operations? Yeah. So, so there's a there's a message that goes beyond finance, and that message came out loud and clear on a day in which we were having one of our first department meetings with our new dean, and somehow the Zoom system didn't quite work. So half of the faculty was left uh, without being able to be present in the discussion, which was, as you can imagine, very frustrating for everybody. So I came up to the dean and said to him, "Look." You shouldn't really worry too much about this because integrating the social and the technological is very hard. And so we all overlook the difficulty that, that is entailed in doing this. So what I would say is that integrating is one of the most difficult things to do, that you need a, a thorough understanding of the business, leaving aside the technology, plus an understanding of the technology. But if you do spend time understanding these things and 
putting something together, you have a chance to really have an advantage over your competitors. Right. So in some ways, when our video platform systems break down, we shouldn't curse. We should regard that as an opportunity to rethink the challenges of being a human in a world of technology and harnessing it in a technological way. Well, I think that's a very good call to arms, given that it's very unlikely, even as we do go back to the offices, it's very unlikely we're going to abandon video calls anytime soon. So thank you very much indeed, Daniel, for sharing your insights. It is indeed a fascinating trajectory from being an anthropologist in the midst of a bank trading floor, derivatives team back at the turn of the century, all the way through to advising British regulators today and different types of businesses. Thanks for joining us on Global Perspectives. I'm Gillian Tett. Join us next month where we'll be chatting to another inspiring business observer. And if you want to hear more of KPMG's global podcast, head now to home.kpmg. Thank you. <laughs>